John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one, whom, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. This is your word. And we long to hear from you this morning. And so, Lord, we ask that you would soften our hearts. Help us fix our attention on you and what you have told us through your word. We pray that you would feed our souls this morning that we would see Jesus, and we pray in his name, amen. Well, Andrew Bonar was a Scottish preacher who lived in the 1800s, and he wrote this in his diary. This day, 20 years ago, I preached for the first time as an ordained minister. It is amazing that the Lord has spared me and used me at all. I have no reason to wonder that he used others far more than he does me, yet envy is my hurt. And today I've been seeking grace to rejoice exceedingly over the usefulness of others, even where it casts me into the shade. Lord, take away this envy from me. What a beautiful and honest journal entry. There are many of us today, this morning, who are struggling with envy and jealousy 
and comparison. And then there's a lot of us who would like to admit that we aren't jealous people. But the true test really comes when someone else gets what you want. That's when we see if we are a jealous person or not. And Andrew Bonner, this godly pastor, struggled even 20 years into his ministry with jealousy and envy. He knew what was in his heart and he sought the Lord to take away his envy. And in humility, he wrote, it is amazing that the Lord has spared me and used me at all. So my question to you this morning is, have you dealt with jealousy? With the jealousy within you, the envy, the spiritual pride in your own heart? Or have you allowed it to remain and even to grow? In our passage, we have a scene where John the Baptist is being tempted by his disciples to compare his ministry with Jesus' ministry and fall into the sin of jealousy. And keep in mind, John at this point is the most popular teacher in Israel. And yet his response to Jesus shows us how we are to respond in these types of moments by looking to Christ ourselves and pointing others to him. So if you're taking notes this morning, I've organized the sermon into three sections. In verses 22 through 26, we're going to see the jealousy of John's disciples. In verses 27 to 30, we see the humility of John the Baptist. And in verses 31 to 36, we see the greatness of Jesus Christ. And the main point, which I hope you see in the text this morning, is this. The greatness and grace of Jesus leads us to believe, to decrease, and to point to Jesus who must increase. The greatness and grace of Jesus leads us to believe, to decrease, and to point to Jesus who must increase. All right, so let's take a look at the setting we have here. So verse 22, it says, after this. After what? After this refers to after the Passover feast. After Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus who came to him at night. And remember, Jesus explains to Nicodemus that he must be born again. Explain that salvation doesn't come through who you are or what you have done, but it's a work of God from start to finish. Even before you take the first step of faith in believing God, God must change your own heart. He must bring you from spiritual death to spiritual life. And so far, Jesus has said that there are two things that must happen. You must be born again, and the Son of Man must be lifted up. Jesus says, in order for salvation to be accomplished, he must go to the cross and die for our sins so that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. And he says that this is the plan of the Father, right? John 3, 16, Jesus 
says in order for salvation to be accomplished, he must go to the cross and die for our sins. And he does this because God so loved the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so after this, after Jesus's time in Jerusalem, after his conversation with Nicodemus, he and his disciples went off into the Judean countryside. And they did this so that they could spend some quality time together. And the text also says that he was baptizing. There's an important point of clarification we need to make here, though. John chapter 4, verse 2, it says in parentheses, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So when it says that Jesus was baptizing, it means that he was overseeing these baptisms. But it was actually his disciples who were administering the water. And then in verse 23, we see that John the Baptist was also baptizing in the same place at Anon near Salim because there was a lot of water there. A Baptist dream. And as we mentioned a few weeks ago, and I completely understand how this could be a little confusing, the John mentioned in this text is not the John who is the author of this gospel, right? But it's the other John that we've already seen in this gospel. It is John the... Oh, boy. It's early. John the... Okay. (laughs) John the Baptist. The last part of his name is the thing that he's known for. He's John the Baptist. His old reputation is that he's the guy who baptized a lot of people. And in verse 24, we have this important point of clarification again in parentheses. For John had not yet been put in prison. And while that may seem like it's not that helpful of a note, for the original readers, it was extremely helpful. And if you've read through the Gospels, you would notice that all the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, explain that Jesus' public Galilean ministry happens after John the Baptist was put in prison. But here, John, the author, is explaining that stuff happened before that time. Before his Galilean ministry in the north, Jesus had a Judean ministry in the south. All right, so let's get to the conflict of this story, verses 25 and 26. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. So some sort of heated discussion occurred between the disciples of John and a Jew over purification. Maybe this person came and said to them, have you seen those crowds forming over by that Jesus guy? Looks like his ministry is growing. And this led to a moment of envy and jealousy. Whatever was mentioned here in this discussion, it is clear that John's disciples do not like what is going on. 
They're jealous about what is happening through the ministry of Jesus. And unfortunately, this type of thing happens still today in the church. I've got some friends who are a part of churches that have ministries within their church that view other ministries within the same church as opponents. They get jealous if another ministry grows or if the spotlight is on that ministry for a certain season. They don't root for each other. It's sad that this happens within the church today. And sometimes churches have this idea that they are the only ones being used by God in their city. I really hope that's not how we feel. Praise God that he is working in other churches in our city. Yes, churches that aren't Baptist churches. <gasps> but of course, we're thankful for our church, right? And the doctrines that we believe, because we believe they actually come from the Bible. But we don't need to have a judgmental spirit against those other gospel-centered, Bible-believing churches in our city. Not all the churches in our area are good. That's another clarifying point we need to make. Not all churches are good, but there are some that are good. And I think of just one that's just literally a block from us, Pastor Paul's church. That's a good gospel-centered church. So we should be praying for them. We should be rooting for them, that their ministries would grow and that God would bless them. And yet in these verses, we have John's disciples starting to get pretty worked up because they see Jesus' ministry starting to get the spotlight. They're jealous. And they come to John and they try to tempt him to be jealous along with them. Look at what they say. Rabbi, teacher, by using this word rabbi, they're emphasizing how important John is to them. Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan. Notice how they don't even mention Jesus' name here. They're like, you know that guy? That guy who was with you? You remember? The one whom you bore witness to? He got his start from you. You gave him the platform. You were the one who told people about him. Remember that guy, Rabbi? Look, he's baptizing. That's your thing. You're John the Baptist. And you see how they exaggerate? They say, all are going to him. They're being so dramatic here. Not all are going to him. It says in the text that people were still coming to John to be baptized. But they're like, Rabbi, that guy, we're not even going to mention his name. The one whom you bore witness to is doing your thing and everyone's going to him. They're jealous. They're full of envy. And they wanted John to join in with their frustration. We too fall into the same sin. We need to ask ourselves, have I allowed envy, jealousy, or spiritual pride to well up inside of me? Do I desire for others to hear me more, to listen to me more? Just take a second 
and think about who you're jealous of. Who are you jealous of? We all have a desire in our hearts to be recognized, to be noticed, to be put on some sort of pedestal. And in this moment, the inner circle around John the Baptist realizes that if John becomes number two, then they become number three. They don't want Jesus to have priority. They don't see who he really is. So they asked John, what are you going to do? Aren't you frustrated like us, John? And notice that John says four things in response to these disciples. John's words here are so amazing. What he says is what makes John such a great example of humility. We see the humility of John the Baptist in these verses. Look at verse 27. The first thing that John says is, it's all from God anyway. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. He's reminding his disciples that even the ministry position that he was in was given to him by God. A person cannot receive even one thing unless God gives it to them. God has sovereignly given each of us certain gifts and has placed us in certain positions for his purposes. And we need to be content with them. Seek to be faithful with what he has given us and where he has placed us. There's no need for jealousy if we realize that the gifts and positions that we've been given are for God's purposes and not our own glory. John is saying, God has called me to prepare the way. My ministry is to be the forerunner. That's the thing that I've been given, to prepare the way. And now Jesus, his calling is to be the way. John sees the people going to Jesus instead of him, and he says, it's all from God. It's all from God. Are you this way? When you see others around you succeeding in something that you would like to be good at? I remember being in high school and being pretty good at guitar. In fact, my senior year, I taught lessons at the local music store. <laughs> but I still remember walking into guitar class in college at Berklee College of Music, hearing my classmates warm up on their guitars. And immediately I knew how unskilled I was. I remember feeling so embarrassed and so jealous. I tried to figure out ways in which I was better than those people in my mind because I knew how much better and gifted they were than me. How's your attitude with those whom God has given a stronger gifting or more opportunities that, that you wish that you had? How is your attitude when that happens? If we have great gifts, they were given to us 
by God or his purposes. If we have moderate gifts, that also means that they were given to us by God for his purposes. And so we have no reason to boast about ourselves. All that we have has come from God and is for his glory. The goal is never to have our name in lights or have tons of people following us. But we tend to be more concerned about our reputation. We want to be glorified. We want to be admired. But our response should be more like John the Baptist. God is the one who gives gifts. If others succeed, to God be the glory. If I succeed, glory be to God. And in reality, like Andrew Bonner said, it's amazing that God would even use me at all. Look at the second thing that John says in verse 28. He said, it's all from God anyway. In verse 28, he says, I already told you, I'm not the Christ. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. You guys know this. I've been telling you, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. John understood his role and his place. All throughout his ministry, he had been preparing and directing people to follow Jesus. Right? We even saw that at the beginning in the prologue, at the introduction of John's gospel. John chapter 1, verses 6 to 8 says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. John knew he wasn't the light, but he came to bear witness. He, he came to testify about the light. And then in chapter 1, verses 19 to 28, there's this investigation, right? There's this report that all these people are flocking to John the Baptist. And so this investigation party was sent to interview John. What does he do? He confesses right away, I am not the Christ. And so they ask him, are you Elijah? He's like, nope, I'm not. They asked him, are you the prophet? He's like, nope, not me. Remember what they said? Well, then who are you? Who are you, man? And then he says, I'm just a voice. Just a voice preparing the way for the Lord. And then the next day, he saw Jesus and announces, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then later on says, I bear witness that this is the Son of God. And then what does John do the next day? He sent his disciples off with Jesus. And so these disciples who were still around John knew these things. John had no intention of competing with Jesus. He gladly welcomed his ministry. But we need to remind ourselves, we are not the Christ. I am not the Christ. And this leads us to the third thing that John says. He says, it's all from God. I already told you I'm not the Christ. And then in verse 29, he says, I rejoice in being the best man. 
The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. The friend of the bridegroom is what we would call the best man at the wedding. The best man is the one who stands close to the groom. He's the one before the wedding, making sure that the groom doesn't see the bride, right? He's making sure that all these things are going as planned. But there is one central rule that all best men should never break. Not under any circumstances do you marry the bride. John says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. He used this wedding analogy because in the Old Testament, the people of God, God's people, Israel, were sometimes described as the bride. And the Messiah, who was to come as the bridegroom. And so John saw his ministry as pointing God's people, the bride, to the one whom they belonged, the groom. And John says, I'm the friend. I'm the best man. It'd be such an awkward wedding if the bride starts to walk down the aisle and then you start seeing the best man start winking at her. Right? And as the wedding is being conducted, all of a sudden the, you hear the best man going, psst, psst, hey, what are you doing later after all this is over? That's a bad best man, right? We can all agree with that. You don't do that. That's not your role. And yet we act this way in some of our ministry efforts. We want the people that we minister to, to recognize us. We want those whom we disciple to need us as much as they need Jesus. That's not our role. And yet, sadly, we point to ourselves more than we point to him. It's not my role as the pastor to draw all of you to myself. It's my job to point you to Jesus. The best man doesn't try to draw the attention of the bride to himself, but he is there to watch the groom's joy and be filled with joy himself. I don't have this in my manuscript, but I have been pretty jealous because I've never been asked to be the best man at a wedding. <laughs> Just throwing that out there. <laughs> but I have been a part of the bridal party, and one of the best parts about it, standing here and seeing the groom right here is not actually when the bride walks down the aisle. It's actually looking at him and to see his joy and to be filled with joy myself. John the Baptist saw people flocking to Jesus. And he says, I'm far from feeling jealous that the bride is going to the bridegroom. I feel joy. I've never been happier in my life 
My joy is now complete. What makes your joy complete? There are many things in our lives that we feel are going to be it. The things that are going to finally make me feel happy, right? Like that Amazon package that's coming later on this week. I'm finally going to feel happy. Or that new person I just started dating. Finally going to feel happy. That raise that I've been asking for for a while. A new job. Good news from the doctor. That trip that's coming up. And if you feel that way and you've got small children going on that trip with you, let me warn you, it's not going to be the trip that you think it's going to be. (laughs) None of these things will complete your joy. What completed John's joy? Stepping aside and pointing to Jesus. That completed his joy. Serving self will never satisfy. Dying to self will produce joy. John didn't resent that Jesus had come. He rejoiced that the saving light was now shining in the world. He wanted to point to that light, to point to the Savior and lead the bride into the arms of his friend, the bridegroom. The greatest reward of serving Jesus is simply the joy of serving Jesus. Our joy shouldn't come and go depending on success. Our joy shouldn't come and go depending on who praises us or approves us. But we should see the privilege of serving Jesus simply because of our love for him because of how great he is. A.W. Pink said this, if you want joy, you get joy by looking at Jesus. And if you lack joy, it's because you're not looking at Jesus. It's that simple. Like John, we will have joy as we lead sinners to Christ, as we point people to him. And the last thing that John says is, I need to become less important and Jesus needs to become more important. Right? We see that he must increase, but I must decrease. These are the last words of John the Baptist in the Gospel of John. After this chapter, we're not going to hear from him again. One commentator said, the last words of John to be recorded in this gospel are some of the greatest words ever to fall from the lips of mortal man. Not only does John refuse to compete with Jesus, refuse to be jealous, he went further. And he declares, he must increase and I must decrease. And you know what happened after John? Or what happened to John after this? John went to prison and he was beheaded. So if you thought that following Jesus was going to lead you to an easy, comfortable, and happy life, John the Baptist proves that that's not the case. We're not promised an easy and comfortable life when we follow Jesus, but we are promised a life filled with joy, a life that is full even in the midst of the darkest 
of seasons. He must increase, and I must decrease. This verse should always be on our minds and hearts. Because deep down, we all know we have that desire to increase. Pride and self-exaltation is at the root of every sin that we commit. When we succeed, what do we want? Recognition. And then when we fail, what do we do? We throw a self-pity party and we desire for the attention of others to feel sorry for us. We desire to increase. And these parting words of John the Baptist are encouraging to us to humble ourselves. And this is the third must in John chapter 3. You must be born again. The Son of Man must be lifted up. I must decrease. Is this your prayer? Is this your purpose in life to become less in order for Christ to increase? All throughout scripture, we're reminded to be humble. First Peter chapter 5, 5 says this, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. But humility isn't something that we can just do on our own. You all know that, right? The more I try to be humble, the less humble I become, right? Right? <laughs> if I say I am the most humble person on the face of the earth, do you think I am? We cannot produce humility. It's a byproduct. But if I'm focusing on Jesus, if I'm focusing on the one who is gentle and lowly, the one who emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, the one who humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death on a cross, if I'm constantly focused on the word of God that helps me see who I truly am and who he truly is, then humility comes as a byproduct. Christ goes up and I go down. This is what growth in the Christian life is about. You decreasing and Christ increasing. And at the end of the day, we should desire for people to see Jesus rather than us. There's this story about a group of American Christians who were visiting London for just one week. And their friends wanted them to hear the city's two greatest preachers and then bring back a report to them. So on Sunday morning, they went to hear Joseph Parker, a man who was famous for his eloquence in preaching. And as they left the service, one of them said, I do declare, it must be said, for there is no doubt that Joseph Parker is the greatest preacher that ever was. The group planned to come back to actually hear him preach in the evening service, but then they remembered that their friends asked them to go see Charles Spurgeon as well. So that night, they attended the Metropolitan Tabernacle where Spurgeon was preaching, 
And as they left, they said, I do declare it must be said, for there is no doubt that Jesus Christ is the greatest savior that there ever was. Let that be what the world sees in us. Not our gifts, not our talents, but the glory of Jesus. May we decrease and may he increase. And then in verses 31 to 36, John helps us see why Jesus should increase. He shows us the greatness of Jesus. Because when we see him for who he really is, then we will truly desire to see him increase. When we see the supremacy of Jesus, the greatness of Jesus, this will motivate us to worship him, to obey him, to honor him, and see him increase as we decrease. And so why should he increase? Verse 31, because of where he comes from. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. In this verse, we're told where Jesus comes from. He comes from above. He comes from heaven. And this is contrasted to those who are of the earth, right? There are only two places you can be from, either heaven or the earth. Jesus is from above. And as wonderful of an example that John the Baptist is of humility, John the Baptist is still of the earth. And he is pointing out that he and all of us are of the earth. Jesus is unique because he is not from the earth. Unlike everyone, he came from heaven to this earth. John is pointing to the fact that Jesus is the son of God. He is the word who was in the beginning, who was with God and who is God. And then it says twice that he who is from heaven is above all. He is above all. Because he is above all, he must increase. We must decrease. Another reason is because of what he speaks. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Jesus came from heaven to tell us about the glory and the grace of the heavenly Father. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. God the Father sent Jesus, and so when Jesus speaks, he speaks God's words. And bears witness in that portion of scripture is in the present tense, meaning that he continues to speak through the living word of God. And yet, few people receive what he says. But Jesus is worthy of increasing because he tells the truth. He gives true testimony. Only of Jesus does it say that he received the spirit without measure. The prophets who came before spoke on behalf of God, but they only received the spirit in part. But here we see Jesus having the spirit without measure. He has no sin to grieve the spirit. 
And so as a result, there's no error that comes from his lips. He speaks the very words of God. And then look at verses 35 to 36. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus is loved and honored by the father. The father has given all things into his hand, which means that he should be loved and honored and treasured by all of God's people. If these things are not true, then you shouldn't believe Christianity. But if they are true, and I'm making the argument that they are true, and Jesus is really truly who he says he is, then he is worthy of our trust and belief. This is the truth. Jesus is truly great. No one has more authority. No one else has come from heaven. No one else is the word made flesh. No one else is the bridegroom and no one else must increase. And because of this, there are only two ways to respond. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus is the rightful king of the universe. He is above all. And so if you're unwilling to bow the knee to the king, then you are on the wrong side of truth. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. When you believe in the son, that means you obey him. But if you do not believe, then that means you don't obey him. And what does the text say here? If you don't obey him, you won't see life and the wrath of God remains on you. All of us outside of Jesus Christ have the wrath of God on us because we have sinned and rebelled against God. We are born into this world as sinners. We're corrupt, we're guilty. Wrath is our deserved state. It's only by the grace of God that we have life. And so everyone in this room, pay attention. I need to be clear about this. If you come to Christ, if you follow Christ, if you receive Christ, you will live forever. That is true. But so is this. If you reject Christ, you've heard of him this morning and you reject him, and you don't know him, you don't follow him, you don't obey him, you don't believe in him, it will lead to death. The wrath of God will remain on you. And I say this, and I want it to be clear, that's why I'm yelling it, because I want you to know that you're, you can't get to heaven based on your own works by being a good person. You need a savior. Everyone here needs a savior because we're all sinners 
And it doesn't matter how small or big you think your sins are. They have separated you from God. You need a savior and his name is Jesus. Only in Jesus Christ is there salvation from the wrath to come. So my encouragement to you this morning, and I'm speaking in love. I hope you hear that. I'm warning you. You need to turn from your sin and you need to believe in Jesus Christ. Stop playing games. Believe in him. Because that's the thing that's going to set you free from envy. That's the thing that's going to set you free from jealousy and comparison. That's the thing that's going to set you free from all your sin and all your guilt. What will set the disciples of John free from their sin in this text? To see really who Jesus is and to believe in him. To see that John the Baptist must decrease. To see that they must decrease and that Jesus must increase. And that's what sets us free as well. The greatness and grace of Jesus leads us to believe, to decrease, and to point to Jesus who must increase. And so if you're here this morning and God has been working in your heart and you need someone to talk to, you need someone to pray for you, after this service, a few of us are going to be up here up front. Feel free to just come up. We'd love to talk to you about Jesus. We'd love to pray for you. Remember, the greatness and grace of Jesus leads us to believe, to decrease, and to point to Jesus who must increase. Let's go to the, the Lord in prayer. Lord, we happily admit that we are not the Christ. We ask that you would increase and that we would decrease. And for all of us, that's going to look differently, Lord. So please lead us. Whatever in our hearts and lives and emotions you need to increase, and wherever our, our pride and insecurity and weaknesses are in which we need to decrease, would you show us, would you remind us of your grace, remind us of the good news of the gospel, help us to set our eyes on Jesus so that he would increase and receive all the glory, help us to live faithful lives and point others to Jesus. We pray this in his name, amen.